Returning now to God's Word, and our uh, scripture for today is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. This is God's Word. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not uh, of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your, your holy word. And Lord, how deeply we need your revelation that you have spoken to us. And uh, Lord, as we learn to not uh, be wise in our own eyes, to not trust in our own minds, Lord, we want to trust in uh, the perfection of your word. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would now uh, come and lead us into all truth and take these words that the Apostle Paul wrote so many years ago and apply them into our life, our community here now. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are in uh, the second sermon of a five-part uh, sermon series talking about the five core values of Christchurch Bellingham. And the five core values are these, these five words, grace, truth, hospitality, formation, and kingdom. Grace, truth, hospitality, formation, and kingdom. And each week we're going through uh, those words and explaining what does it mean that these words describe the culture of everything we do here at Christ Church. And last week, uh, we looked at grace, and uh, we talked about the grace of Jesus, which is the first and most important of our core values. And today, we move on to the second core value, which is the topic of truth. And the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus uh, came, he came full of grace and truth. The grace and truth go together. They went together in Jesus, and grace and truth need to go together also in the church. And why do grace and truth need to go together? Well, it's, you know, grace is comforting, inviting, loving, you know, gives us a sense of security. Truth is challenging. Truth calls us to change. Truth says things that we might not want to hear. And if you have a church that only has grace in it, well, the church is going to become soft and the church isn't really going to grow into maturity. But if you have a church that only has truth in it, it's going to be harsh. It's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be discouraging. And so you need grace and truth together. And so what does it mean that we are a church that's committed to God's truth in everything we do? Well, this is the way we've summarized it. Is we submit to all of God's word 
and speak it into all of life. We submit to all of God's word and speak it into all of life. And so a huge part of our church and everything we do is that we believe that the Bible is the inerrant and inspired and authoritative word of God. It is the truth. And, and that means, you know, if you're in this community and you don't believe in that, you're going to have a hard time here because everything we shape is assuming that the Bible is revealing to us who God is. And uh, this passage I just read from 2 Corinthians is, is a great text talking about the Apostle Paul's ministry and how important it was for him to speak plainly and lovingly and boldly the gospel and the truth of God's word and its implications into every part of life. And so this morning I want to talk about this core value of truth um, under four headings. Four headings that will kind of guide us through this passage. And this is what the four headings are. The war of truth. The manner of truth, the result of truth, and the object of truth. The war of truth, the manner of truth, the result of truth, and the object of truth. And I think each of these will really give us a picture around what is the culture of being truth speakers that we hope to be and to be shaped by the truth here at Christ Church. And, it's, and it pairs importantly with our sermon from last week about grace. So... Four headings for us today as we look at this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And the first one is this. The war of truth. The war of truth. Uh, we are in the middle of a war about truth. And some of you will hear that and you say, yep, I know that. We are in a war. I feel it. I feel there's a war in our culture. But I, you know, some of you will hear that and say, it's a little aggressive, you know, do I want to hear more about the war of truth that is all around us? Uh, our culture is so divided. There's uh, so little civility in our culture. And I'm sick of the culture war. Can't we just get along? And do we really need everyone saying, I have the truth and you're wrong and I'm at war with anyone who disagrees with me? Do we need more of that? Well, I sympathize with that. You know, my temperament, I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. I, I don't like to offend people. And I like everything to make sense to everyone. And th I think that's why we have to face squarely this passage from the Apostle Paul, the way he talks about his ministry, because he clearly understands that he is in a war. And you see that language there in verse 4, where he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He sees his ministry as warfare. And actually, I was just reading a, a book last week. One of my favorite uh, thinkers is, is uh, a theologian named Peter Lightheart, who uh, wrote a book called The Theopolitan Mission. And he was talking about how when you read in the Old Testament that God's people went into the promised land, and when they went into the promised land, it was a war. They went and they cast down all the idols in the promised land, and they took the land by warfare. And, uh, and he says that it, when you come to the New Testament in the book of Acts, basically the early church was doing the same thing. They were casting down these idols, and it was a different kind of warfare. But this is how Lightheart describes Paul's ministry. He says, Paul is a divine warrior carrying out the new covenant war of utter destruction, eager to cast down every idol. Paul could slip in and out of cities without anyone noticing. He doesn't. When he arrived in a city, he heads straight for the synagogue, knowing that he'll soon be embroiled in battle. 
In Athens, he debates on Mars Hill, the most public place in the city, and in other cities, he's notorious enough to spark riots. The spirit of Gideon and Samson, who are warriors in the Old Testament, emboldens Paul for warfare in public places, in synagogues, in town squares. Again, it's a lesson for us. The spirit drives us into the fray. If we're, if we're keeping in step with the spirit, get ready to fight with the Spirit's weapons. If you're walking in the Spirit, you'll be driven into public places to preach the public truth of the gospel. He describes ministry as warfare. And if we're in a war, we can't pretend that we're not in a war. We can't be unwilling to name that for ourselves, that we're in a war. That's going to you know, prepare us for what we're in the middle of. And what kind of war are we in? Well, thankfully, it's not a war of bloodshed and bombs. It is a war of ideas. You see that there in verse 5 where Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, many modern people would read that verse about taking every thought captive and say this is exactly the problem with religions. Religions want to take thoughts captive. You want to take, you know, what religion does is takes your intellect and puts it in prison and doesn't allow for, you know, free inquiry into, you know, exploring new ideas with our minds. And so if, uh, if there's a war of ideas, the one idea that needs to get torn down is, is the idea of religion that imprisons our intellect. Now, what would we say to that as Christians? Well, even the word idea comes from the Greek word for form or pattern. Ideas are always conforming to some pattern. There are no free ideas. There's no pure, you know, free thinking. Every thought is captive to something. Every idea, every ideology is captive to something. In our day, uh, the ideas are captive to human emotion, to the inner life of the individual. Uh, have been elevated to such incredible heights that they've, it's, our inner life has been given supreme authority. And all thinking in our culture, it's not free. It's captive to indiv individual emotions. And you know your emotions. What do you think about your emotions? Well, first you should think your emotions are good. They were made by God. You should listen to your emotions. You should pay attention to your emotions. Your emotions are important for serving and worshiping God. But should your emotions be given the supreme authority that every thought is held captive to? Would you rather have your life captive to your emotions or captive to Christ? And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge as Christians that the reason we believe in the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel is not because it makes our life better. It's not because it will make us happier. It's not because it will make us more successful. Often, the Christian life does do that and does bring us deep joy and it brings us meaning and our life is transformed. The reason we believe the Bible is because we believe it's true. The central message of the Bible is that the God who created this world became a human in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. His body was raised from the dead and he is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father now in heaven. These are historic realities that we are just saying this is the truth of the world we are living in and we can't understand how to live in this world unless we know the truth of our situation. It has nothing to do with our emotions. It's not a truth about our emotions. It's a truth about what God is doing in history. We believe in the Bible because it's true. 
And you can see why that statement would start a war. Jesus is now enthroned as the true king of the world. Uh, Revelation says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Do we think the power structures of the world are just going to roll over when Jesus says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? No, they're not just going to roll over. And so we find ourselves in a war. Now, you might think that saying that we are in a war of truth gives Christians license to be obnoxious or to join the uncivil discourse of our culture right now. And so it's really important to hear these words from the apostle in verse 3, where he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And what the flesh is, the flesh is the anger and the envy and the self-righteousness and the arrogance of human nature. And he says, we don't fight like the way the world does. And so that leads to our second point. So the first is that though we're in, in a war of truth, we can't pretend that we're not in a war. The second thing is what is the manner of truth? What is our manner of being in this war? We do not wage war like the world. Our manner is different. And, you know, my dad always told me growing up, it's not what you say, it's how you, Nate, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. You know, that depends on how people receive it. He says, how you say things is a part of your message. That is deeply true for us as Christians. How we say things is a part of our message. And it's clear in this passage that was extremely important to the apostle. Look at what it says in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble... When face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I really like the proportion of these verses. You have uh, meek, gentle, and humble, three of those, and then one boldness. I think that's the right proportion. Three times we're, we're gentle and one time we're bold. And, uh, and if we're going to be like Christ, we need to have both these qualities, both gentleness and boldness. And so I want to say a few words about these things. So what should our manner be? as God's people, as we speak the truth. The first is, we speak the truth with gentleness. We speak the truth with gentleness. Paul says in Philippians, let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. That should be our general manner. And I think a big part of speaking the truth in gentleness means that we start by listening. You know, James commands us. He says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 18 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You think about it, We're giving people the answer to the life. Here's the truth about the reality of the world and the reality of your life. But this says, if we speak before we've listened to a person about their life, what is the story? What have they been through? What do they already believe? What do they care about? How are we going to speak the gospel to a person's life and to their heart if we don't know them? We begin by listening. Proverbs says it's our folly and shame if we speak before we listen. And uh, so our manner should generally be one of gentleness because our message is about the grace of God. Now, some of you say, how do you be in a war and be gentle? Those things do not go together. War and gentleness. Well, that's exactly how the gospel is. How does Jesus conquer the world by dying on the cross? That seems the opposite. It's the upside-down way of the kingdom, and the way we speak the truth should match the upside-down nature of the gospel. So we wage war with gentleness. But it turns out that that's not always true. Three times gentleness 
But there's a second truth in, in Paul's manner. Is it also says that we speak the truth with boldness. And you see what he says in verse 2. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so it's interesting. Boldness for Paul is kind of a last resort. He's reluctant to be uh, bold. And the time that he uses boldness is when the gospel is under threat. And, you know, you see that both with Paul and with Jesus. Who is Jesus really hard on? It's the teachers. People who want to teach things that are contrary to the gospel. That's who you need to be hard on. It's not people who are struggling with sins and come to the church and they say, Oh, I'm having so much struggle in my life. Grace, welcome, patience, kindness, encouragement, compassion. That's the person who's struggling. It's the person who says, I want to be a teacher of the truth. That's who we bring our boldness to, to say, no, the truth is the gospel. And the word uh, there for boldness is really has to do with fearing man. Will we fear God or will we fear man? And uh, Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we can confidently say, that word confidence, uh, thereo, that's that, that word for boldness. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If we're going to be a church that is dedicated to God's truth, we have to be resolved that we will not be afraid of man. We will not say what we're going to say based on the fear of man. It is on the fear of God. And uh, we're not going to fear what the world thinks of us because this is the truth. And we're going to say it plainly and lovingly and clearly. And so how do we be bold as God's people? Well, I know for me as a pastor, I have to, you know, because I, I, I don't want to offend people. I know I have to go through books of the Bible and I say, well, whatever this passage, the next passage is, that's what we're going to say. And, what, and I have to resolve in myself, whatever the hardest thing to say is in the passage, I'm going to say it clearly. Because I, we have a duty. And you may have to have a principle like that in your own life. You know, you have people who, disagree, you know, who do not believe the Bible or think differently than you that are your coworkers or your family members. And have some resolution when it comes, I'm going to speak and say what I believe. We need to say the truth with gentleness and love. Now this raises a question for us. Because if we say, okay, we're in a war of truth. How do we know that we have the truth? Isn't that the problem that everyone is so convinced that they have the truth and then they look down on everyone else who disagrees with them? And so people justify the mistreatment of other people because they think they have the truth and they're teaching everyone the truth and they're imposing their truth on everyone else. And of course that's true. Uh, you know, we may believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but you still have to interpret the Bible. And people say, you know, there's all kinds of denominations and they have all kinds of different beliefs about what the Bible teaches. Is there even really something that all the churches agree upon? I mean, there's so many interpretations that can we even say what the truth is after it's all, all these differing opinions? Well, let me uh, give three suggestions on how we both be bold to say this is the truth, but also remain humble and gentle, okay? And they go in this order. The first is, that we keep the Bible central. We keep the Bible central. The thing that the church has always said is the Bible is the Word of God. That's the book that we know is true. And so that's why on Sunday mornings we're always, you know, it's not what 
Nate and Matt want to talk about, it's what the text says. So even if we're like, you know, oh, we're in a war of truth, I don't know if I want to hear that, but if I point to the passage and say, well, Paul says right there we're in a war, you'd be like, well, there it is in the text. It's pretty plain to all of us. Keep God's word central. This is the truth. We need to be hearing God's word and, and putting God's word before our eyes over and over again because we may not trust in our own minds, but we trust in God's word, okay? So first, keep the Bible central. Second, listen to the church throughout history. Listen to the church throughout history because sometimes when people say there are all these denominations and Christians don't agree about anything, that is simply not true. C.S. Lewis is, is famous for saying there is a large body of doctrine and belief that Christ, all Christians have agreed upon throughout history. He, call, he called it mere Christianity. And it includes everything from believing that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the sexual ethics of the church, that sex should be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Like all Christians have believed that throughout history. It doesn't matter. You know, there have been some fringe denominations, but largely this is what Christians have believed. By the way, you know, a part of that core body that Christians have always believed is that abortion is immoral. In the early church, the early church was rescuing babies and bringing babies in. The early, and since the early church, Christians have always believed in the forgiveness of sins. Even for someone who's had an abortion, there's forgiveness and there is grace in Jesus and the church has always believed in the care for women as well. If you go back, you know, part of the reason for the growth of the early church was women came to the church. They knew that Jesus loved them and cared for them and protected them. And throughout history, the church has had more uh, women in the church than men because women are drawn to Christ. This is all a part of the body of doctrine that Christians have all agreed upon throughout history. And then if you add in, in our church, we're a Reformed church, and you add 500 years of theology that you, that's a robust worldview that the Reformed or Presbyterian church believes in, this is something we can be confident in. And when we're within the bounds of what the Bible says and what the church has been saying throughout history, we can be confident this is the truth. And then after those two, we should be humble. We should not be wise in our own eyes. We have to apply this worldview into all the different areas of our life and our church, and we're going to have differing opinions. So we should be humble, and we should listen to one another and hear one another's uh, opinions. And I think it's that combination. We're not open-minded about whether the Bible is the Word of God. And if I come up with something that Christians throughout history have never said, it's probably wrong. And when we're devoted to the Bible first and the tradition of the church second, we combine both a boldness and a humility into one. Now, when the church clearly speaks the word of God and submits to it in every area of life, what then happens? And that's our third point. So we've looked at the war of truth uh, that is fought in this manner of largely gentleness, occasional boldness, by staying close to the Bible, the historical theology of the church, and not being wise in our own eyes. But the third heading that um, we're going to talk about today is the result of truth. What is the result of being uh, devoted to the truth? And I want to point out two things. Okay, the first is truth leads to obedience. Truth leads to obedience. And you see that there again in verse 5 where it says, we destroy arguments 
and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're taking every thought captive to obedience to Jesus. And so Paul clearly envisions that for a church, our, the truth doesn't just live in our minds like we know a bunch of theology. It's supposed to be lived out in our lives. It's supposed to shape every aspect of our lives, from our family to our workplaces, to our relationships, to our life in the church, to our life with our neighbors, to our hobbies. There is no part of our life that is not shaped by the gospel. And doing this work of pushing the gospel into every area of our lives is, is the work of doing moral reasoning, or you might call it theological reasoning. And, and this is one of the things that needs to be discovered by the church in our day. Just as the natural world has laws of nature that govern, the, the natural, the, uh, that govern nature, there is a moral structure to reality that has to be carefully reasoned through. And so you take, for example, these last two years of COVID, and you think of all the moral questions that were at play and what does the church do during COVID? You know, you have scientific data, you have obligations to neighbors, the elderly and immunocompromised, you have obedience to the governing authorities, you have obedience to church officers, you have the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to show hospitality, to welcome people in, to build relationships with people. You have God's commands to worship him on the Lord's day. And to fellowship, you have commands to be humble, and we have commands as a church to be of one mind. All of these commands have to be reasoned through to say, what are we going to do then? This demands careful moral reasoning. And it can't just be people's anxieties or frustrations insisting on what we do. It's, you know, it's like an engineer who has to make sure that a building is designed respecting the laws of nature. So human beings' moral decisions have to honor the moral structure of God's world and his revealed truth. And how broadly does God's truth speak to us? Well, he says here, take every thought captive. I mean, can you imagine how more thoroughly, even into our thoughts, in every, that shaping all of our behavior is shaped by Christ. And so obedience is not just religious activities like praying or doing church. It's everything about our lives. Truth shapes how we live. And so the first result of truth is a life of obedience to Christ. The second result of truth is the truth also leads to building up of God's people, strengthening of God's people. And you see that there in verse 8 where it says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed to teach you the truth because I know the truth will make you strong. It's going to make you strong. You know, the church is like a building and a building needs to be reinforced and ready for any earthquake so that it can take whatever storm comes and it's strong. And God's truth does that for a community uh, like ours. Truth makes us stable. And that happens in our individual lives. You know, when you have good doctrine, you believe the truth, you're ready when trials come in your life. You're ready to interpret it and say, I know what God is doing. I know that God loves me. I know that God purposes all things for my good. I know that I can trust him. It strengthens us. And uh, actually, there was a, a study done a generation ago um, where uh, I, I don't know how many people were at, who, who, there were a group of people who had, been, who had not been Christians 
and then come into a church and had been in a church for at least three years and their lives had been changed by the gospel. And now they were an active part of a community and they were asked, what were the most important things that caused that transformation to happen in your life? Overwhelmingly, over 90% of the people said, learning the truth of the Bible was number one. And second, the church had clear doctrinal positions and spoke them clearly and knew what they believed. That is what gave them strength. That is what gave them life change. That is what gave them permanence in their Christian life. This is what the truth is for. It is to strengthen us and to build us up. And so what we've seen so far is that in the war of truth, the manner of our warfare is a combination of gentleness and boldness. And the result of truth in our community is a whole life lived in obedience to Christ and a stable church community able to endure the many challenges of the Christian life. But the last thing that we see about this passage is the object of truth. The object of truth. Now, when most people hear that we're in a war for truth, the war that comes to mind is probably the political culture war between, you know, the political left and right in our culture right now. And, and that's not unrelated uh, to the war that I'm talking about because what we're saying is we're bringing every thought captive to Christ. And so we should be engaged in all of those discussions about the culture war and, and the political uh, uh, conflict in our culture. But what is the truth that Paul is fighting for in this passage? In verse 5 again, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The truth we are fighting for is not a political ideology. It's not even a moral code. It is a person. Jesus Christ is the truth that we give our unquestioning loyalty to. I'll tell you, what, what's the difference between Jesus and a political ideology? What political ideology has ever loved you or died for you or forgiven you or given you eternal life? When the truth is a person, we love the truth because he first loved us. We die for this truth. We're willing to die for this truth because he first died for us. The object of our faith, the object of truth, is the person Jesus Christ. And the reason why grace and truth go together so beautifully is because the truth we're speaking about is the grace of Christ. Grace and truth are not at odds with each other. They are one in his person. And so we speak and so we speak all of of God's we speak all of God's truth and submit to it in all of life because we want to know Jesus more. It is his war. It is his manner of gentleness and boldness. It's his results of a changed life in a strong church, ultimately because he is the object of our faith. He is ultimate truth, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that in such a confused world, we can turn to your word. We can turn to the man Jesus Christ and know in your word is perfect truth. What peace and strength it gives to our minds and hearts. What stability it gives to our community. 
And Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would give us courage, that we would not fear man, but that we would speak with gentleness and confidence the truth that you are the God who made this world. And in Jesus Christ, all things are being made new. In him is the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of God. And Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. And so we pray that you train our minds in truth. We would know the truth. We would understand the truth. And you enable us to speak the truth as well. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.